Have you ever had an experience in class or in school where you thought you understood what your teacher was teaching, you thought you understand what you were supposed to study for the quiz, that test, that essay, and you came to find out when they handed you back that test, that quiz, that essay, that in reality, you didn't know nearly as much as you thought you did. In fact, you totally bombed the test. In fact, you did so poorly. The teacher offers you to retest, to take it over again. That's how bad you did. Hopefully, given this opportunity, you won't fail the test a second time because you already know what's there. You saw what was on it. You know what you're supposed to study and look for. And hopefully you'll learn from your past mistakes and going forward, you'll pass with flying colors. We find ourselves in a somewhat comparable situation here this morning in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples are being given miracle after miracle after miracle from their teacher, Jesus. And they're supposed to learn something from these miracles. They're supposed to gain information and draw some conclusions based on what they're witnessing. However, even as we read in our scripture reading this morning, we find that when tested, they are not drawing the right conclusions at all, but are failing miserably instead. They are, in fact, downright missing the point altogether. In Mark 6, after seeing Jesus feed the 5,000 people, and even after distributing the bread and fish to the crowd, the disciples are still missing something about Jesus. They're missing who he is and their need to respond by placing their faith and trust in him alone. And this is evident even as Jesus walks on the water out to his disciples in the boat. Jesus is displaying himself in a glorious and vivid way. And how do the disciples respond? They respond by being terrified and astounded. And then Mark adds this troubling comment in chapter 6, verse 52. Look at that. He says, they were astounded and afraid because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. We're given the picture that if they truly understood Jesus' miracle just a moment ago, if they understood what it revealed about Jesus, they wouldn't have been astounded or terrified because they would have known who he is and they would have trusted him. But when the test comes to see whether or not they get it, they fail miserably. So this brings us to Mark chapter 8 here this morning. A very similar story in many respects to the feeding of the 5,000. A second account where Jesus feeds the masses again. And this miracle acts almost as a second chance for the disciples to get it. A, a retest to see if they'll come around to understanding. But before diving into the text at hand, let's read this account together. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days... There was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can we or anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back in the boat and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Father, as we come to the text this morning, may we have eyes that see, may we have ears that hear, and may our hearts be open and receptive to your word. May it not hit us and bounce off, but may your word impact us as it should. And may we as your people respond appropriately to this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has been ministering in Gentile territory. Mark wants us to be aware that he is still with Gentiles and adds, in those days, in verse 1, to help us understand that he's still here. He hasn't left Gentile territory yet. Jesus is with the Gentiles. So, as he's been ministering, as he's been teaching all these people all around, there's a large crowd of Gentile people that gather around him. Now, as Mark has already mentioned, this crowd is different than the first one we found in chapter 6. One, these are not Jewish men. And two, this group of Gentiles is composed of men, women, and children. However, like the Jewish crowd found in chapter 6, these people have nothing to eat after three days of being in a desolate place with Jesus. So Jesus calls his disciples to himself. He makes them aware of the situation. 
saying, I have compassion on this crowd. They've already stayed with me three days, three days in this desolate place. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse. And they've come a long, long way. Jesus cares deeply about this group of Gentile people. Just as he cared for the Jewish men in chapter 6, so he cares for the Gentile people here in chapter 8. His compassion for these Gentiles would have gone against the natural grain of Jewish society at large. The Jews in general did not like the Gentiles at all. They didn't. They looked at them as if they were dogs. They looked down their noses and they despised them. But unlike the rest of the Jewish society, Jesus deeply cares about these men, these women, and children that have come great distances just to see him and hear him and have even stayed three days, mind you, three days in a desolate place extending past their supply of food. As we contemplate the character of our Savior Jesus Christ, we can see his compassion and care for the masses. And as his ambassadors, as his representatives here on earth, is that true of his church? Is that true of his people here this morning? Do we, like Jesus, have a heart towards all people made in the image of God? Do we see all people as valuable as Jesus? Or do we instead look down upon some? Do we display animosity, irritation, or perhaps even hatred against some? Do we treat some people as perhaps a waste of time? My guess is, if we're truly being honest with ourselves, we struggle to have the heart of God towards all people because some people in our estimation are just too difficult to love. So because of this, we're tempted to discriminate against each other due to their political stance, due to their you know, difficult personality, due to their education level, or by what they do or what they don't do, or by their so social occupation or age or ethnicity, rather than seeing this person as one made in the image of God, one that is valuable to our Savior. And in these moments where we struggle to love people as God called us to do, we have to remind ourselves that we were unworthy Gentile sinners, and yet despite our unworthiness, Jesus loved us so much that he died. He went to the cross for us. And not just us, but the people we struggle with too. Jesus died to redeem people made in his image, and so we must love others, even as we see Jesus loving the Gentiles here in the text before us. So we find that Jesus knows the needs of these people. He cares about them. He cares about them deeply. So he explains all of this to his disciples in such a way as to invite their input. It's like he's saying, what do I do in this situation? What should I do for these people since I care about them so much? How do you expect the disciples to respond in this moment? How would you respond to Jesus giving you this information? 
Well, if you're a disciple of Christ up to this point, you have seen him do a great deal of miracles, right? If you remembered back to our scripture reading in just two chapters ago, what did Jesus do in this very similar circumstance? He fed them. He satisfied them completely. So as the disciples find themselves once more in a similar situation, maybe, just maybe, they might ask, are you going to feed them just like you did? Because we remember what happened just a couple chapters back. We sought, we beheld your glory as you fed the masses. So is this the kind of response we find from the disciples? And unfortunately, it's not. Instead, they ask, where? Where can we get enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Really? Where? Where can we get enough bread to satisfy the people? We're tempted to ask them, didn't you just see what just happened a couple chapters back? But we get a response that gives us the impression that the disciples don't remember what Jesus did last time, or it's as if they don't think Jesus capable of doing exactly what he just did a couple chapters back. Instead of looking to Jesus and seeing him as the answer, they mistakenly look to their own inability and their own inadequacy rather than the one who is able. They look to themselves rather than to Jesus. Now the disciples should know by now that the only place that they can truly get bread for all these people is in and through Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the people. But instead of evidencing faith and trust, they evidence doubt and unbelief, even after all they've witnessed. Even after seeing Jesus walk on the water, even after seeing Jesus still the storm, even after the feeding of the 5,000 and the miraculous healings and the casting out of demons, they're still failing to grasp who Jesus is and what he can do. So Jesus, as he did the first time, goes through nearly the exact same motions as he did in the feeding of the 5,000. He begins by asking them a question. How many loaves do you have? Seven, they said. Then Jesus commands the crowd to sit, and then taking the seven loaves, he gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples to set before the people. And so they serve the crowd. And then they also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. So Jesus repeats a miracle he just did for the Jewish men a couple chapters back for the Gentile people here. And we're tempted to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus do this? And there's at least a few reasons why Jesus repeats this miracle. Number one, Jesus wants his disciples to truly know and understand who he is. As Mark already told us, they completely missed it the first time. They failed to grasp the feeding of the 5,000 and the point they were to grasp from that miracle. This miracle acts as a second chance for them to get it. Second, Jesus wants his disciples to learn, truly learn that they must come to him for the bread that satisfies. They must look to him and not themselves for Jesus alone satisfies completely. And I think this is why in both of the accounts, 
It is the disciples who distribute, distribute the bread and the fish. Notice that it isn't Jesus handing out the bread and the fish. It's the disciples. They have to keep coming back to Jesus for the bread and the fish to give to the masses. They were to look to Jesus and be supplied by Jesus to meet their need and the needs of all around. And then number three, I think Jesus wants to foreshadow what he's going to do for the Gentiles. Just as Jesus satisfied the Jews with bread and had an abundant amount left over, so he satisfies the Gentiles with an abundant amount of food left over. God made a promise to Abraham that one day all nations, all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And this promise is being fulfilled in Jesus right now. And just as the Gentiles would be saved and filled with food after three long days in a desolate place, looking to Jesus, the bread of life, so are all saved and fulfilled as they look to the resurrected Jesus who was raised on the third day. Catch that connection. I don't think this is by chance or by coincidence, but I think we as the reader are supposed to put two and two together. Jesus is going to save the Gentiles and he's going to do it in a miraculous way even as he's raised from the dead on the third day. So once more, I think Jesus does this miracle to foreshadow what he's going to do for us, for Gentiles, and for all mankind. So I think these are at least a few reasons why Mark records Jesus doing a miracle a second time. After Jesus performs this stunning miracle, we're simply told that Jesus dismisses the crowd. He dismisses them. And from here, he and his disciples get into the boat and they head back to Dalmanutha. Now, we're not told exactly why Jesus goes here or where this place is located. But what is important is that it's located in Jewish territory by the Sea of Galilee. And it's here where Jesus once again encounters the Pharisees. We've seen them come up time and time again. As Jesus enters Dalmanutha, he's confronted by the Pharisees and they start arguing with him. The Pharisees were the religious, religious elite among the Jews. They were well-learned, highly educated, and well-respected among the people. And it's these people that have a bone to pick with Jesus. If we remember all the way back to chapter 3, the Pharisees hate Jesus so much that they're even conspiring with the Herodians, their political enemies, to find a way to kill Jesus and put him to death. So here we find them again at odds with Jesus as they demand that he does a sign from heaven. Now, at first glance, you may think that the Pharisees want a sign from heaven to help them believe in Jesus. Just, you know, do a miracle so that we can believe. But that's not the case at all. They want a sign, as the text tells us, to test him. Don't miss this. They want a sign to test him. And this isn't a test to see whether or not they'll believe. It's a test so that they might disprove or discredit Jesus. That's the force of the word test here. So while their outward motives might look pure, you know, we just want to see if you are who you really say you are. In reality, it's motivated by a desire to find a way to disprove Jesus and discredit him. 
They're trying to get Jesus to do something so that they can trap him. This is perhaps why they demand a specific sign from heaven. Now, there's a major problem with the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus. And I'm sure you can already think of some. For one, Jesus had already been doing numerous signs up to this point. He's healed a layman before all of them, including the Pharisees. He's healed countless sick people. He's cast out demons. And no doubt, no doubt they heard about the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, what more could you want? And yet they want another sign. We learn that no amount of evidence or miracles will be enough for the one who has chosen to orient themselves towards unbelief. So how does Jesus respond to the demands of the Pharisees? How does he respond? He sighs deeply in his spirit and he says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Jesus responds to those with great skepticism, with great disappointment and exasperation. They've seen his mighty works time and time again, yet they still fail to believe. Jesus says, it's enough. No, they will not receive the sign they're looking for. They've seen more than enough and have still chosen to not believe. So Jesus leaves them. He doesn't entertain their demand. He abandons them. And two things become plainly evident at this point. First, we learn that we must accept Jesus on his own terms. We don't get to dictate whether or not we'll believe in Jesus if he does this or that for us. We don't get to say, well, if you do this for me, then I'll believe and I'll follow you, Jesus. We either accept Christ for who he is and follow him or we reject him. Second, we learn if we don't accept Jesus on his own terms, we may be abandoned by him. Jesus leaves the doubters and the skeptics. He doesn't entertain their demand for more signs. Instead, he demands their faith. And just as Jesus suddenly leaves them, so he will one day abandon all who continually reject him for who he has revealed himself to be. And this should be a troubling thought for anyone who is on the fence with Jesus. He will not forever tolerate unbelief or skepticism. There is a call and urgency to respond to Christ in faith and follow him. So if that's you this morning, know that Jesus calls for your allegiance. He calls for your obedience. As Jesus ends this matter with the Pharisees, he leaves in a boat with the disciples to the other side. And with this change of scenery, we first are told that the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. The disciples forgot to pack bread. And now they only have one loaf to share amongst themselves, which definitely wouldn't have been enough for all of them to share. It wouldn't be enough to sustain them. So it's in this middle of this realization that Jesus gives his disciples strict orders, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
Jesus tells them in this exact moment, watch out, be careful. Jesus wants the disciples to be on guard about something. But Jesus' parable-like saying isn't immediately understood or perceived. What does he mean by this saying? What do you think he means? First, we have to know what leaven is. Leaven isn't exactly the same thing as the yeast that people use today, but it would have had a similar effect in baking. Leaven would infect the dough and cause it to rise and become puffed up. It was in this sense that it was often used by rabbis and teachers to describe something negatively. Not always, but most often negatively. In this case, Jesus is saying, watch out for something that spreads and contaminates which the Pharisees and Herod have. But this still leaves us with the question, well, what is this leaven you speak of? What is it that we're to watch out for? The Pharisees and Herod have little to nothing in common whatsoever. They're on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So what is the leaven that describes both of these groups? What is it that they have in common that the disciples are supposed to watch out for? And there's only one thing that they really had in common other than being human. And that was the fact that they didn't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They both expressed doubt and unbelief about who Jesus was. And so when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, he's saying, beware of unbelief, which is infectious. Don't allow it to go unchecked. For if you do, unbelief will contaminate you to your core, just as it has with the Pharisees and Herod. This is what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples to be cautious about. And he tells them to watch out for unbelief the moment they realize they forgot bread. So how do the disciples respond? The, the disciples respond by discussing among themselves the fact that they did not have any bread. They hear Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and then they immediately start talking about how they don't have bread. And now it's difficult to know exactly what's going through the minds of the disciples at this moment. Perhaps Jesus' use of the word leaven made the disciples think about physical bread, so their minds wandered to the fact that they don't have bread. Or perhaps along similar lines, their hunger dominated their thoughts more than Jesus' words of warning to them. So they hear Jesus' word, and it bounces off them, and they go back to talking about their lack of bread. We can't know exactly what's going through their minds, but what we do know is that they completely and entirely miss what Jesus is trying to tell them. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Don't, do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? If it sounds like Jesus is going after his disciples here, it's because he is. Having eyes and not seeing, and having ears but not hearing, and having a hardened heart all describe Israel in some of its lowest and rebellious points. Jesus is likening his disciples to the Old Testament Israelites of old, 
who though seeing many great miracles, fell into unbelief and questioned God on numerous occasions, whether or not he would truly care for them and provide for their needs. So Jesus is strongly rebuking his disciples for their failure to understand his warning to them about unbelief. He wants them in a sense to wake up, sense the danger that you're in, arouse yourself from your stupor and realize the danger that you're facing. What danger? The danger of becoming like the Pharisees and Herod in their unbelief. And even like some of the Israelites of old, Jesus is telling them to watch out for the unbelief creeping up in their soul. Don't allow it to remain or it will contaminate you to your core. Jesus' warning here is stark. And it's a warning that he gives to all of his disciples. We learn that unbelief can contaminate your soul if you fail to respond appropriately to Jesus. And the ones who are in most danger are those who have seen the most, have heard the most, and yet have failed to respond appropriately to Jesus by trusting him and by following him as they should. So if the disciples can miss this point entirely, so can we. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 was meant to draw Jesus' disciples to trust him and have faith in him. They were to look to Jesus to satisfy their every need. But instead, we find the disciples right here in this moment acting as if they won't have enough bread right here and now in the presence of the one who just multiplied it abundantly. Not just once, but twice. Their actions and words reveal unbelief in the person and power of Jesus that he had literally just warned them about. And this is why he goes after them. He cares about them. He doesn't want them to fall away into unbelief just as the Pharisees and Herod did. So what do we do when we struggle and we face unbelief like the disciples, when we're tempted to doubt whether or not Christ is powerful enough to satisfy us? What do we do in these moments? We take our cue from Jesus here at this moment. We do what Jesus does for his disciples. He helps them by reminding them of his power and his works. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? It's, just, it's as if Jesus is saying, guys, last time we were in this situation, when we were lacking, what happened? I satisfied the crowd. How many baskets were left over? You can imagine the, the pause as the disciples have to think about it and then finally come up with the answer, 12, 12 baskets. And then you can imagine Jesus pushing them to remember the even more recent event. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you collect? They finally come up with their answer, seven, seven baskets. And then Jesus drills them with this question. Don't you understand yet? Don't you get it? And this is the question we're left confronted with here this morning. Do we understand yet? Do we get it? Do we remember who Jesus is and his power to satisfy? 
or do we instead evidence an unbelieving heart? Well, it's easy to go after the disciples here. I think Mark wants us to see the condition of not only their heart, but our own heart as well. We, like the disciples, are so prone to forget who Jesus is and what he can do. We so often, like the disciples, think our momentary lack or struggle is bigger than Jesus. We act as if Jesus can't do anything about the predicament that we're in this time. Never mind, you know, the countless other times he's been faithful to us. This time's different. He can't help me this time. Though we would never frame it this way. This is how we often act in unbelief. Rather than looking to Jesus in faith, we often find unbelief in our hearts when Jesus is right there beside us, beckoning us to come unto him. So I urge you this morning, as Jesus warned, and as Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 warns, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but instead encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So in our moments, when we are tempted to act in unbelief, let us instead bring to remembrance who our God is and fix our eyes on Christ. Let us remember his past faithfulness to us. Let us remember his power. Let us remember his goodness to us. Let us run to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Father, we look to Christ even now, asking that you would help our unbelief. Lord, we claim you are all-powerful. We claim you can satisfy the heart of man. But when confronted with lack, confronted with trial, you are often the last person we run to. We forget that you are by our side. We forget who you are. We instead act as if our situation is bigger than you. So help us to have eyes of faith, to act in faith. Where there is unbelief creeping up in our soul, threatening to contaminate us and take us whole, we ask that you would purify our souls, eradicate our unbelief, and help us to believe. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.